Today I'd like to welcome Dr. Sammy Zechariah, who uh, actually is coming home for his, from uh, doing his cardiology fellowship here a few years back, uh, subsequently went uh, to UCSF to complete a critical care fellowship there, and um, now runs the, the cardiac ICU over at Bayview, Hopkins Bayview, so, um, and he's going to talk to us today on cardiogenic shock, so thanks for coming. Well, it's a pleasure. So today was a big day for me. We're actually in the midst of moving right now. Um, but hopefully this talk will come out okay. Um, so basically I want to talk to you about a patient that was uh, was uh, actually I took care of at University of Maryland. And, and he was a 50-year-old gentleman. He had a history of uh, non-ischemic cardiomyopathy. He had an EF of 30%, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, who basically presented in the emergency department with progressive fatigue and a cough. Uh, before this, he had stable class 3B symptoms, and this included nightly PND, dyspnea on exertion with minimal exertion, uh, tupular orthopnea, bilateral leg edema, but it was without chest pain or palpitations. And really, within the last month, he didn't have any change in his symptoms except for this fatigue and a new call. Uh, in his past medical history, it's basically the history of non ischemic cardiomyopathy. This is actually diagnosed 10 years earlier. Uh, but he had a cardiac catheterization done one year prior to this, which showed no evidence of coronary disease. Um, he also had a history of NSVT and a prophylactic ICD placed, uh, so non-sustained ventricular tachycardia. Um, and it had a PE two years earlier, um, hypertension, high cholesterol, some osteoarthritis, and gout. No surgeries in the past except for that defibrillator. These are his medications, and it's actually a pretty good medical regimen for a patient with non-ischemic cardiomyopathy. It includes your standard uh, beta blocker, in this case an ARB. Um, he was on a, a blood thinner of Coumadin and, and the rest of the medications there. This is the rest of his history, his allergies, family history, and review of systems. Essentially um, not very pertinent. His social history, he quit smoking tobacco in 1999, but but uh, had a 40-pack year history. He actually is a very interesting guy. He was a Desert Storm veteran and then worked as a traffic police officer until his diagnosis of uh, uh, non-ischemic cardiomyopathy limited him. And so instead of stopping working, he then went and became a police dispatcher and actually was on shift the, the night before. So on physical exam, here are your findings. So I, I did them in red for easy uh, looking at it, but basically his blood pressure is lower than before, and his blood pressure is 79 or 57. Heart rate's in the 80s, but remember he's on a beta blocker. Um, he had jugular venous distension all the way up to his jawline at a 30 degree, and when you actually compressed his liver, it kept on going up. Um, his heart sounds included an S3. He had diminished sounds at his bases of his lungs, and he had cool extremities, and he was, had plus one edema. Um, here are his labs. Sodium is 134. Bilirubin is a little bit up at 3. Uh, white blood cell count 11.1. His EKG shows sinus tachycardia and a left bundle, but this left bundle has been there for years. And a chest X-ray shows possible left lower lung infiltrate. So I'm going to stop right now. <laughs> so this is going to be a very difficult differential because it's kind of obvious what it is. Uh, but car- it's basically cardiogenic shock. But but I want to point out that it can be tricky to figure out what or how to figure out this diagnosis. And, I mean, in the ED, you could easily say. Or even in the um, ICU setting, you could easily say that this could be due to septic shock because he has evidence of a, a potentially an infiltrate in his lung. Um, he has a slight increase in his white blood cell count. Um, it could be due to a new PE. He's had a history of pulmonary embolism in the past. He's still on warfarin for it. So it could be tricky. 
but in this case, we'll say it's cardiogenic shock because that's what Mike McCurdy told me to talk about. So um, his histories and physical exam findings are consistent with it. He has a history of heart failure. He has symptoms of heart failure, and he has signs of it. Um, and to make a diagnosis of cardiogenic shock, you really need only a few things. One is you have to have signs of end-organ hyperperfusion. So in other words, if just because your blood pressure is 80 over 50, if you're doing fine, if you're doing all the activities of daily living, that doesn't mean you're in shock. But you have to have evidence of cool extremities, alterations in mental status, and decreased urine output. <laughs> Hemodynamically, your vital signs tend to have a systolic blood pressure lower than 80 or 90, depending on what textbook you read. Or a mean arterial pressure that's less by 30 millimeters. Or dependent on catecholamines. In other words, if your blood pressure is 110 over 60, but you're on uh, norepinephrine, well, maybe that's still a shock. Um, heart rate tends to be greater than 100, but with many of our patients who tend to be on beta blockers or other rate-lowering uh, agents, um, this may not be true, and the respiration rate tends to be high. In laboratory findings, you tend to have a decline in your mixed venous oxygen, and, and the reason why is because you have more oxygen extraction in the periphery and you have a decline in cardiac output. PaCO2 tends to be on the low side, and the serum lactate um, it tends to be greater than 2. If you put a catheter inside the patient's body, their cardiac index tends to be on the low side, and that makes sense because it's cardiogenic shock. And their LVDP, in other words, their left ventricular end diastolic pressure, tends to be on the high side because they can't pump that blood out. So what are the common etiologies of this? The most common in the United States is acute myocardial infarction. This accounts for 80% of cases of cardiogenic shock. Every year, maybe 40 to 50,000 patients present with this. And inversely, or conversely, I guess, um, out of all the MIs, 5 to 8% of all STEMIs present in shock. 2.5% of all NSTEMIs present in shock. So it's relatively common, enough to keep a CCU or an ICU busy. The second most common is acute heart failure, and this tends to be in the situation where patients have already had chronic heart failure, but they've had a new insult to their body, and, um, and then they develop acute congestion. Um, this could be due to either ischemic or non-ischemic cardiomyopathy. Um, and it could also be due to stressed cardiomyopathy. I remember very good cases here um, where a woman had a birthday party and basically was surprised by this, and an hour or two later she developed intractable ventricular arrhythmias and was brought to the CCU. It turned out she had the classic stressed cardiomyopathy. So clearly she was in shock. Uh, myocarditis could do this. Acute fulminant myocarditis could lead to uh, uh, cardiogenic shock, and valvular disease. So this doesn't tend to be as common as it used to be because we tend to intervene on the valves earlier, but this could certainly, your stenosis, cause cardiogenic shock uh, or MR. So let me just point out that, at least in tertiary care centers, we tend to see this more often when compared to community centers. And community centers, or, or, uh, or for those watching in Haiti and Dominican Republic, the top one may be more common. But here, because we're a tertiary center and University of Maryland, we tend to get more heart failure patients. Um, the last thing, and, and this I'm just putting a little special caveat, is because this accounts for 7% of all um, admissions for cardiogenic shock is acute severe mitral regurgitation. And this could be due to two things, either ischemic MR, where the actual papillary muscle gets um, uh, necrotic and then uh, breaks, or it could be due to structural or functional reasons. Sometimes you could have redundant tissue, it becomes um, and degenerates with time, and then it breaks. So this is actually an example of it, and, and, and I don't know if I have a good pointer, but the, the, uh, in panel A, you could see that papillary muscle in the left atrium. So what, what that is, is, is on the top is the left atrium, the mitral valve is in the middle, and the left ventricle is in the, in the bottom portion of the valve. 
And the papillary muscle should be on the other side of the valve leaflet. Instead, it's flipped upwards. And when you put a, a Doppler probe, you could see that th there's a lot of colors, and that signifies turbulent blood flow. This is, this is basically severe mitral regurgitation. It's an acute emergency. They tend to go into the ICUs. And, and, and in this case here, it's due to papillary muscle rupture. And you can see in, on, the, on panel A in the bottom where they have an asterisk on it, it's the papillary muscle that's basically bisected in half. So there are other rare causes of cardiogenic shock. Uh, we always, cardiologists love talking about the, the mechanical complications of MI, and unfortunately, I barely see them anymore. And that's because most of these patients go straight to the cath lab. Uh, but if you have severe ischemia in the septal wall, you could have a ventricular septal wall defect or rupture, um, you could, which basically doubles your blood flow to the, uh, the right side and to the pulmonary artery. You could also have a ventricular free wall rupture and this we don't see too much because they tend to be dead before they, before they even get to the ED. Um, but if you have a contained rupture, it's potentially you could see them in, inside the ICU setting. And acute mitral valve regurgitation, which we do see once in a while. So these tend to occur five to seven days after an MI. So you have the myocardial infarction. Maybe they had chest pain, um, shortness of breath, but you know, they blew it off. And four or five days later, they suddenly developed severe dyspnea. If when you see that, you have to suspect that you have a mechanical complication. Other rare causes of um, cardiogenic shock includes right ventricular failure, which is 2.8% of all cases, pericardial tamponade, which is a little bit less, uh, PE, which could have been possible in our patient, or aortic dissection. And actually, we wrote up a case report of a patient here at uh, University of Maryland who had an aortic dissection which dissected into the pericardium. And this is relatively common. And, and the reason why we wrote this up as a case report is because it compressed the pulmonary artery. It was so big. Um, he, didn't, he didn't live. So he, he, was, he was very sick right away. Um, OK. Lastly, I'm going to just give you some of these just to be complete. Otherwise, Mike McCurdy will get mad at me. Uh, so uh, refractory sustained tachyarrhythmias would be another one. If, you're going, if you have AFib with RVR for a long period of time, it tends to call the tachycardia-induced cardiomyopathy. The EF may drop to 20 30%. Uh, medication overdoses. So this is more common than we think. Um, it usually is due to calcium channel blockers or beta blockers. Iatrogenic, and I put this in red because this happens more often than you think as well. Somebody comes in for an acute MI or for heart failure, and you transition them to a beta blocker, and all of a sudden they develop shock. Um, so this is something that you should keep in mind. Cardiotoxic drugs, and this is like includes the chemotherapy regimen. Electrolyte abnormalities. Um, in shock trauma, myocardial contusions are a frequent cause, especially in the right ventricle. If you tend to be in, uh, if you if you're in CPR for uh, for an elective cabbage, that could also lead to shock because the heart just doesn't want to start up again and hypertrophic cardiomyopathy due to left ventricular outflow tract obstruction. Again, that's very rare. I've actually never seen the last one causing cardiogenic shock. It usually tends to cause more sudden death. All right, so this is a little bit um, changed in font, but let's go back to our patients. So, so we, since we said that this is probably acute heart failure in a setting of chronic dilated cardiomyopathy, we couldn't rule out infection. Um, and, and that's important because actually infection doesn't only just lead to septic shock, it also could lead to cardiogenic shock. So the inflammatory cytokines have a direct myocardial depressant ability. And in fact, in all septic patients, if you just, if you just put an echo probe on them, 50% of them will have a decline in function or diastolic dysfunction. 
So it's really due to inflammation, um, and this is something that we should keep in mind. In patients who actually come in with acute myocardial infarction, 20% of them have signs of SIRS. So if you have heart disease, that could also lead to a SIRS-like response, which could be deleterious to the heart. So I don't know if can... Okay, so the arrow shows up. So this is the classic cascade that's in almost every single cardiogenic shock review article I've seen since the last 15 years. So the classic thing is that you have myocardial dysfunction, um, usually due to uh, occluded artery, and you have either systolic you have systolic and diastolic dysfunction. So when you have diastolic dysfunction, which occurs first, you have an increase in left ventricular and diastolic pressure. Um, and uh, if you have systolic dysfunction, you have a decline in cardiac output and stroke volume. These subsequently lead to hypotension and decline in coronary perfusion pressure, which leads to hy- hypo- ischemia. In addition, your ischemia is made worse because you're hypoxemic since there's fluid now in the lungs. When you develop ischemia, it then makes things worse because then ischemia begets ischemia and it leads to more systolic and diastolic dysfunction. And you go into that vicious cycle. Eventually, the heart says, you know what, I'm tired of this. I'm just going to have more dysfunction and I'm going to have more, and eventually dying. Also, you have myocardial dysfunction, as we talked about earlier, leads to a SERS like response. And as you're well aware from, from septic shock patients, that uh, leads to decline of systemic perfusion hypotension, which worsens coronary perfusion, which worsens ischemia, again, worsening the cascade. Um, It also blocks compensatory vasoconstriction, which occurs in cardiogenic shock. So why am I emphasizing so much on SIRS? It's because there's a ton of patients out there with ejection fractions of 20%, and some of them are doing just fine. Actually, a couple weeks ago, I had a patient who had an EF of 20%, and the reason why I knew that is because, or he came to my clinic with a known diagnosis of EF 20%. So his story was he was at his PCP's office with a cough. He suspects pneumonia, gets a chest X-ray, shows a big um, cardiac silhouette, then gets an echo, and it shows an EF of 20-25%. So at that point, I asked him, well, how are you feeling? Well, I'm running an hour a day, about five or six miles. I bench 225, which is more than me. Uh, I'm squatting three plates on each side. I'm like, you're, you're more fit than most of the people, well, certainly in the hospital, but, but even the people taking care of the patients in the hospital. So I just left them alone. And many patients are like that. I mean, maybe not to that degree. And I think what it is, is, and this is a, a theory that's pr- propagated by this uh, uh, author right here, uh, Dr. Hockman. Um, she believes that you need two hits, that you have, have to have a decline in your cardiac output but you also have to have a SERS-like response to go into shock. So this could get tricky because this is very hard to differentiate between these two types of shock. Is there any questions on this, on this slide? I know I focused on it for a longer period of time, but I wanted to make sure that we spent a little bit of time going over it. Okay. So the good news is, is most of these patients, you could break this cascade by revascularization. So that's why they have a big little... Uh, call-out box was saying that if you relieve the ischemia, you could break the cascade and maybe reverse everything. And, and you could actually have a good quality of life. 
All right, so let's go. We've gone over the etiologies of cardiogenic shock, and then we've gone a little bit about the pathophysiology. Let's go to the management. So this is going to be tricky, and, and I have a t hard time presenting this because there's so many different causes of cardiogenic shock. For example, if you come in with a big PE and you're in shock, well, maybe you should be aggressive in terms of anticoagulation or antithrombotics. Um, but since the most common cause is due to acute MI, you want to get the patient to the cardiac catheterization laboratory as soon as possible. This was proven in 1999. So there was the shock trial that was published in the New England Journal, which randomized patients to either uh, prompt revascularization. In other words, once they hit the door, they go straight to the cath lab, or medical management and interiorotic balloon pump placement, and then compared them and see what ha happened. So actually, the trial was a negative study because their endpoint was a 30-day survival, and it was numerically different. It was 53.3% versus 44%, but it wasn't statistically significant. However, once you hit six months, it was statistically significant. There was a statistically significant difference in mortality. It was actually an absolute risk reduction of 13%. So that means you treat eight patients or so, and you'll have one person live longer at six months. They then did a follow-up study and said, hey, how are these patients doing? So six years later, the absolute risk reduction remained at 13%. So this is an amazing kind of statistic. Six years later, you could save one patient out of every eight. All right, so this one, I think in, um, in the email going out later on today, this article will be presented because I think it's a landmark study. What's early? Within, right at the door. So the average patient went to the cath lab within two hours. So this is kind of remarkable because this was 1999. There was as the biggest push to do the door to balloon time like there is now. So now, like, people want to push the patients to get in within 90 minutes. All right. So our patient, we know, doesn't have coronary artery disease and, and might have another cause. So what's the first thing you do? Well, I wrote the answer up here, but this is the, you, you get an, a stat echo. Echo is probably the best, or this is a test of choice. And, and you'll see that on, um, on almost every single board question that addresses this topic. You really want to focus on getting an echo because it impacts diagnosis. It could help differentiate different causes of cardiogenic shock. For example, if you have a large pulmonary embolism, your right ventricle is not going to work as well. Um, if you have uh, acute coronary syndrome causing a new wall motion abnormality, well, an echo will pick that up too. If you have an aortic dissection dissecting into the pericardium, you'll see that on echo. So an echo is probably the most invaluable test you could do. Um, so this is um, an interesting point. In, in, in the ER, they're learning how to do these fast echoes where, where you could get a lot of information just from putting the probe on the, on the patient first for five to 10 seconds. Um, and, and I think that should be encouraged because it could really affect what you do next. Uh, the same thing should go for the ICU. We use this, the Sonos uh, or, or whatever, the site right that in doing procedures. It's not hard to learn how to do it. Just to learn the basics, and you could probably spend a couple hours and learn how to, how to assess the heart rapidly. Um, or you could just call the cardiology fellow on call. So that might be easier. Which... The, the second thing is, is to use a pulmonary artery catheter um, to guide your, both for diagnosis and management. So, and for the audience here, how many have used a pulmonary artery catheter in the last month? So that's one, two, three, there's like seven or eight, not much, right? And it's almost a dying art. In, in the 1980s, every patient admitted to the CTICU would get one. 
And most patients who admitted to MICUs and CCUs would get one as well. And that's probably because of these two major trials. So it's always been controversial whether a uh, Swan-Gans catheter or a right heart cath leads to reductions in mortality or anything. And so they did two trials that were randomized. They were both open-label or open. They're, not, they're single-blinded because it's kind of obvious if you have a catheter in your neck. Um, so the first one is the Pac-Man trial. So this was published in 2005, and it basically randomized patients in all ICUs. And it showed no abnormalities um, or added benefit or harms in, in all ICU patients. And this is actually the slide that comes from it. So they said, if you want to use it, go ahead. If you don't want to use it, well, that's okay, too. And then another trial got published in the same year, and this specifically looked at patients who were admitted to cardiac ICUs. And that showed no added benefits. In fact, it showed it added harm. There was increased adverse events. So there's more ICD firings, and probably because you're tickling the right ventricle, causing ventricular tachycardia, and there's higher rates of infection. So after that, people said, you know what, forget this. We're not going to do this very often. But it's really helpful in... in in, in using it when you don't know what's going on. So maybe you don't need to use it in every patient who comes in with cardiogenic shock. But what if you don't know if cardiogenic shock is occurring? Well, then in that case, then you should place the catheter because it could help for diagnosis. It's very accurate in differentiating different types of shock or even in deciding um, how to titrate your infusions. So it's, it's good for goal-directed therapy. So this is just a quick slide, and this is, this is just from up-to-date. So you can see that there's three type. well, there's actually four types of shock, hypovolemic, cardiogenic, distributive, and obstructive shock. Um, but the systemic vascular resistance tends to be different from cardiogenic compared to distributive shock, which is probably the two things that you want to differentiate the most. I want to put a caveat into this, though. This is the classic teaching. Remember, like, a couple slides earlier, we were talking about that patients with acute myocardial dysfunction have a SERS-like response. And if you look at all patients who come in with cardiogenic shock, actually 30% of them present with a normal systemic vascular resistance or even a low systemic vascular resistance. So this classic teaching may not apply. The second thing that, the second thing that may uh, be different is the pulmonary capillary wedge pressure. So in cases of hypovolemic shock, well, your volume's down, so your pressures tend to be low. If you have distributed shock, it tends to be, if anything, depressed, but sometimes normal. But you remember, sepsis also leads to cardiac dysfunction, so those patients eventually may have myocardial dysfunction and may have a wedge that goes up. So it can get tricky, but this is the classic teaching for different types of shock. Any questions on this before we move on? Okay. All right, so forget the PA catheter. Those, the previous slide, we just said that all the numbers are not going to make sense anyway, so let's try to manage the patient without it. So if you're going to do that, you could try to do serial echoes, and... and and this is not very popular in the cardiology community. And the reason why is because they don't like coming in and doing them every single day. And it may not impact management. But I like using serial echoes in, in cases where I think something is reversible, but yet the patient's not doing as well as I'd like, as I, I, was, I would have hoped. For example, somebody comes in with um, a fulminant myocarditis, and they look clinically better, well, maybe it's worth doing an echo and seeing if their EF improves. Conversely, if they're not doing better, well, let's see if it's getting worse, because it may impact your management later on down the line. Um, some people also use, uh, instead of a mixed venous oxygen off a pulmonary catheter, they just measure the SVC oxygen. This could be misleading, um, but you know, rivers populated in patients with septic shock initially, and, and I think it may be useful. The last one is to consider serial lactate measurements. So this is much more popular for septic shock. And I don't know how many people are using that here for septic shock. 
So more people than have used a pulmonary catheter. So I, I think that is actually not a bad idea, and you could consider using it for cardiogenic shock. The problem is, is no one's ever done a study on it, um, except for this this group in Europe, in Italy, in Milan, Italy, and they propose this algorithm, and they want to do a randomized trial. However, this is all just expert opinion. So of all the patients who come in with it, with um, with ACS Q coronary syndrome, they classify them, are they KILIP 1-2 versus KILIP 3-4? If they're KILIP 3-4, they, they really want to look at their hemodynamic parameters and then monitor the lactate every three hours. And then they use the increase or decrease in lactate to guide their therapies. In those who are KILIP 1 and 2, in other words, they're less shocky, they just check a emission lactate. If it's less than 2, then they don't care as much, but if it's more, then they do the same type of management as they do for the patients who are sicker. Oh, just a review, KILIP 1 and 2 is patients who basically have no signs of heart failure, and patients who are KILIP 3 have signs of heart failure, and KILIP 4 is basically patients who are in cardiogenic shock. And so what is exactly lactate-guided therapy? They don't say. All they say is this, optimize mean arterial pressure. Um, multi-organ protection, optimize metabolic control, and prevent infections. So it's not, I don't think this is ready for prime time, but it's worth studying. Any questions on lactate? Okay. So in, let's go back to our patient. So he was, remember he came in with heart failure, and it turned out he did have heart failure. That chest x-ray finding was a red herring. And we actually cathed him, and at rest, we gave him uh, his right atrial pressure was 8, his right ventricle was 47 over 5, and you remember normal is 25 over 5. His pulmonary artery pressure was 45 or 23. His wedge was high at 21, normal is around 15, or less than 15. Um, his aortic pressure was 105 over 71, and his cardiac index, um, based on thermodilution, was 2. His FIC was 2.61, so a little bit higher, and his pulmonary artery oxygen saturation was 41%. So those are all consistent with, with basically poor pump function. And for the residents here, I want you to focus on only one number. So what, if you had to focus on one number, which one would you focus on? Anyone want to shout it out? If you had to say pick one number, that would be most guide your management. This is a guess what I'm thinking type question. So, What's that? I don't you can use what? A index. Well, the only direct one, this is, again, this is, I guess, what I'm thinking type question. So the one I care about is the PA saturation. If that drops, then you know that the cardiac index is dropping. It's basically a very measured value, um, unless the patient's now developing new um, hypermetabolic state. The other answer that, that could be reasonable is looking at the wedge. But everything else is kind of calculated. So if you're in a CCU and you have a patient who has a mixed venous oxygen of 55% and then it starts creeping down to 53%, then it starts creeping down to 51%, that's a big deal. You should be calling um, to see what you should do about it. All right, any questions about this? All right, well, this patient got nitroprusside, didn't do well. In fact, they stopped the infusion because he had worsening nausea. He dropped his blood pressure further, passed out, and then we started dopamine. So he didn't do so well. Well, luckily, he was a Maryland, so that's a good news. So he, we put him on dopamine. He rapidly improved, and we, we weaned it off. And, and this is actually his numbers here. And if you notice, the numbers are somewhat better. His PA saturation is 68%, which is very much an improvement. His wedge is 30, but much later on, it was 15. And his right atrial pressure dropped as well. 
All right. So then we said, all right, you know what, maybe we should not really give them beta blockers of digoxin because those aren't very helpful in this case, and we'll go on. A couple days later, we transferred him to the PCU. His labs worsened. His sodium dropped to uh, 128. His creatinine went to 2.8, and he felt worse. He actually had a change in mental status again, and his systolic blood pressure dropped to, again at, to the 70s. So the question is, what do you do then? And, and this is the point where you have stage D heart failure. So remember, stage A heart failure is um, basically you're at risk for having heart failure. You have hypertension, diabetes, or something else. Stage B is when you have an asymptomatic decline in your left ventricular ejection fraction to below 40%. Stage C is you get admitted to the hospital with heart failure, but you rapidly bounce back and you're out of the hospital. And stage D is the kind of patient that needs to be taken care of in a tertiary care center, the, the patient who has refractory heart failure despite um, specialized interventions. And essentially, the conventional therapies need to be exhausted. So at this point, you have to consider two things. Do you want to go consider end-of-life care, hospice care? And this may be appropriate for some patients. Or do you want to start doing extraordinary measures? So what would a tertiary academic center do? So in this case, it was University of Maryland, so I have pictures of University of Maryland. But you know, I want to throw in my current institution now. But they do the same thing there, too, by the way. They, so um, so the, I want to focus that if you're in cardiogenic shock, the ABCs still take precedence. So most patients have increased volume. But even in those situations, it's not unreasonable to give a little bit of fluid. Um, cardiologists don't like it when they come in the next morning when you find out they gave him two liters. But if you start off with 250 cc's, that's acceptable because you have to get that blood pressure up a little bit. Then you want to consider vasopressors or inotropic support, revascularization, and IABP. Those are the things that should be considered in, somewhat in, 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 in a rapid fashion. Well, before we get to that, first thing, you want to hold the conventional medications. I can't tell you how many times I've had a cardiogenic shock patient remain on beta blockers or ACE inhibitors or direct vasodilator, or aldactone. All of those are associated with side effects, and it's because neurohormonal inhibition is not tolerated when you're in shock. You want increased uh, uh, neurohormonal tone. If the patient's hemodynamically stable, you want to consider diuresis after you've given them fluid beforehand. And that requires meticulous fluid balance management and usually involves loop diuretics. And the the problem is the cardiogenic shock patients, they don't do so well, so you have to add thiazide diuretics. But they don't do so well because you don't have um, a good absorption of diuretic when you're in shock. So you could try it like high-dose loop diuretic infusions, uh, and the theoretical benefits of that is that it could overcome that resistance. Um, but practically speaking, there was a stu study called a dose study which showed no benefit to using loop diuretics in an infusion versus um, uh, continuous excuse me, continuous versus intermittent dosing. You could also try adding a little drip to augment the diuretic uh, effect, and that could cause a lot of azotemia. So we can't really use that for this patient. You also can't use hemofiltration or ultrafiltration because both of those uh, modalities will depress your blood pressure, and you can't do that if you're in shock. Uh, the only reason I have this slide up is because here at University of Maryland, we participated in the unload trial, which showed that maybe if you ultrafiltrate patients, they'll do better than giving them standard diuretic, but they don't. Um, and that was confirmed in the subsequent trial called the CARES-HF trial, which showed no benefit and actually more adverse effects, more hypotension, and more uh, line-related um, uh, adverse effects. So we don't use ultrafiltration unless you fail diuretics, but essentially that's being on dialysis. All right. Let me emphasize this again. I know I went over diuretics initially, but you cannot remove fluid if you're in cardiogenic shock. You'll make the patient worse, and it won't work. 
So instead, you want to consider peripheral vasodilators and positive inotropic drifts. So this slide I actually had to change a lot since, since when I was in training and fellowship because we have a lot of new information on which inotrope is better, which vasodilator is better. Um, at, Mer at the University of Maryland and at Johns Hopkins, uh, we tend not to use as much vasodilators, so like nitroglycerin and nitroprusside, and it's because they're not very tolerated. Um, Nasiratide is also not very popular. So in the mid-2000s, uh, David Wang and Stephen Gottlieb here determined that nasiratide actually worsens renal function. In a larger study uh, called, I forgot the name of the trial, but it, ASCENT, ASCENT-HF, it showed that there was really no advantage of using nasiratide versus placebo. So basically I consider it as a expensive nitroglycerin. So again, those aren't very well tolerated in acute heart failure. So then we're left with positive inotropic agents. So, so you have four options. One is dobutamine, one is dopamine, one, a third is milanone, fourth is norepinephrine. There's a fifth called levosimendin, which we'll also mention. Theoretically, they all improve cardiac performance. They facilitate diuresis and promote clinical stability. So let's spend a little bit of time on this. And first of all, the indications for this is patients in acute cardiogenic shock, basically either refractory acute heart failure. You could also use this in patients in the palliative care setting. They make patients feel better. So you could start a drip actually at home hospice and just leave them on it till they pass away. And they'll, they'll, they'll feel less shortness of breath, they'll have um, less discomfort. All right, so the advantages of them is they're adrenergic agents. They're both, they have inotropic and chronotropic effects. In other words, they'll make the contraction stronger, they'll increase your heart rate. They also have a lucitropic effect. In other words, they'll help with relaxation, so that helps with patients who have diastolic dysfunction. They're very short-acting, and they work intravenously, so they're, they can be started quickly, and they can stop quickly. The problem with all of these is they're arrhythmogenic, and all of them lead to higher rates of malignant arrhythmias. Also, if you use them for longer periods of time, you have desensitization of the surface receptor, so they won't work as well in a week. You'll have to have higher dosages to see, achieve the same effect. Let's talk about the specific agents. So what is the favorite here now? Is it this one? Is it dobutamine? It's my favorite too. So um, I, probably because I was trained here. It's an extremely useful medication. It binds to beta receptors and it has more of an effect on beta 1 receptors to beta 2. So beta 1 has more of an effect on the heart. Beta-2 tends to have more effect on the periphery and it decreases systemic vascular resistance. So both of, the, both of, both of those things uh, tend to be liked by a heart. It has minimal alpha receptor activity, so it doesn't do much to systemic vascular resistance except decrease it. If you give a dose less than 5 micrograms per kilogram per minute, it tends to decrease your afterload. So you don't want to give this to patients who already have a super low blood pressure. Um, it, if they're able to tolerate it, it does increase your inotropic effect and increases the cardiac output, and, and which, is, which is good in patients with cardiogenic shock. When you compare it to dopamine, dobutamine beats the stuffing out of dopamine. And the reason why is because dopamine has much more of an effect on systemic vascular resistance. In fact, it tends to increase it much more in relationship to the amount that it, um, has, it gives, gives a boost to the heart. Dopamine is also the worst inotrope from those four when it comes to arrhythmias. It leads to more atrial tachyarrhythmias and more ventricular arrhythmias, which are both a bad problem. So then, if, if you don't use dopamine or dobutamine, you could use another presser, but most of those require swans, 
Swan Gantz catheter. And I, I don't, I shouldn't say required because some people do it without it, but I prefer using it for cardiogenic shock if you're going to have this because it really helps with management. Um, all the other pressors substantially affect peripheral vascular resistance, and they could have effects either way, um, which may worsen cardiac output. And these medications can include dopamine, epinephrine, norepinephrine, and others. Let's focus on this one that we use most often, often other than dobutamine, and that's phosphodiesterase inhibitors, and that's milrinone. And it works on, uh, on PDE type 3 inhibitor and, and bypasses the beta-adrenergic receptor. So if this is the sarcomere here and the receptors are over there, it actually works inside the sarcomere itself. So this works well in patients who had down-regulation of their receptors. Um, clinically, when compared to dobutamine, it's more of an inotrope and it's more of a vasodilator. So you really want to be careful using this, especially in patients who have low pulmonary artery pressures because it will preferentially drop the pulmonary pressures there and you could go worse than right particular shock. They used to have a, believe it or not, they used to have a PO formulation of this. And this was studied in the PROMISE trial. So in the early 1990s, people said, well, if you have a weak heart, why don't we give you an adrenergic agent and you'll feel better. And they did initially. But it led to mortality increase, and it led to progressive heart failure. And, and so then they said after that, well, maybe we should try beta blockers instead, and that's why we use beta blockers all the time. But during my medical school training, so from 96 to 2000, that was just becoming into vogue to use a beta blocker. That was very controversial. Well, anyway, then they said, well, okay, you can't use melanone daily for patients of heart failure. Why don't we use it intermittently? So cardiologists would set up these clinics, they say, you're in heart failure. Instead of giving you a diuretic, they'll say, we'll give you a day's worth of milrinone. Well, that also led to increased mortality. So this has basically fallen out of favor. The only time you use an IV adrenergic um, agent is in the hospital or if you're in hospice. Any questions on this? Okay. All right, so we said that that's old thinking. Let's think of new studies and see if we should change the way we practice. So when I was in fellowship here between 2004 and 2007, Cardiologists tended to use dopamine, and the, the MICU attendings and the surgeons tended to use norepinephrine, and that's just the way it was. Heart patients get dopamine, and medical patients get norepinephrine. But then they said, well, you know what, why don't we compare them and see which one is actually better? Actually, the mnemonic for norepinephrine was uh, leave a fed, leave them dead. I don't know if you guys heard that before. But it turns out that dopamine leaves them dead more often than norepinephrine. So there was a SOAP-2 study, which is quoted by every critical care fellow, and it showed no difference between the two agents in, patient, in all patients who come into the ICU, except that there was higher rates of arrhythmias in the dopamine population. However, if you do subgroup analysis, and this was pre-specified, cardiogenic shock patients did worse. So now in the CCU setting, we, our go-to drug if somebody's in shock is uh, norepinephrine. The only time we tend to use dopamine is if, if they have an issue of a bradyarrhythmia, because dopamine does tend to cause more, more tachyarrhythmias. And then there was another study that was more recent. It compared the combination of norepinephrine and dobutamine versus epinephrine, because now if you look in the septic shock guidelines, there is more of an emphasis to use epinephrine. So they compared norepinephrine and dobutamine versus epinephrine, and, and they found that epinephrine was not good for patients who have cardiogenic dysfunction. In fact, it led to higher uh, tachyarrhythmias, uh, uh, higher heart rates and tachyarrhythmias, which is not what you want to do. It also causes higher transient lactic acidosis. Any questions on this before I move on? Okay. 
nothing here. So this is everybody's favorite drug, um, and that's levosomendin, and it's a calcium-sensitizing agent. It leads to hemodynamic improvement in patients with cardiogenic shock. Basically, it causes a more of an iatropic effect on the heart, um, and also decre- decreases your systemic vascular resistance. And this was studied in the SURVIVE trial, and it showed that there's really no advantage in using it over dobutamine. So then they said, well, why don't we just use it routinely after patients get PCI? And that was in the LEAF study, and it showed there was a benefit when compared to placebo. I don't know anybody in, in, in my institution that uses it. I don't know. Is it used here? Okay. What was your experience with it? You liked it? Okay. I think it might be worthwhile doing a randomized trial comparing um, norepinephrine compared to this. Um, and, and see if it see if, see if it works for patients with cardiogenic shock. I mean, they randomized patients compared to dobutamine, but those patients tend to be less sick than patients who require norepinephrine. If you're if you're what it should say is that if you're less than seventy, you should be on norepinephrine. If you're between seventy and hundred, it should be on dobutamine and milanone. And if you're above hundred, you should be on on dobutamine and milanone. Okay. Any questions? All right. Let's go back to our patient. So at this point, he's on uh, milanone, but he's still developing worse symptoms. So he's getting more nausea and vomiting. And when you get that, that sign, that's more ripe ventricular signs of heart failure because you tend to have more hepatic congestion. And he has progressive fatigue. So they, you know, they did a right heart cath and it showed decreased filling pressures. Um, so they gave him a little bit of saline, actually, initially. Um, and they increased his milanone because they thought that might help with his right ventricular dysfunction. And they stopped his ACE inhibitor, which actually helps in chronic patients. Um, because his creatinine kept on increasing. And he felt better initially, but since this is a cardiogenic shock talk, he then didn't. Um, And we really couldn't wean him off this regimen. Uh, Some people try to bridge with a beta blocker, and we tried doing that, and he failed it every single time. So at that point, you have to think of, well, what are you going to do now? What what do you do if you can't wean the patient? They've already gone. You can't diurese them. You've failed low-dose inotropes or one inotrope. What What do you do? And this guy, he developed shortness of breath, palpitations. His ICD started firing with any kind of vigorous activity. And vigorous activity for him meant going to the bathroom. Um, His creatinine went up to 1.7. His hemoglobin started dropping. So we had two options. And again, you'll want to consider this in every patient. Do you want to start going down the end of the life road or the hospice one? In which case, you transition this patient to hospice? Or do you want to consider extraordinary measures? And since it's Maryland, we want to consider extraordinary measures. So the most clinically studied method is to really, you want to bridge whatever you do to do a definitive treatment, and that's transplant. All right, so this is an article from 1998, but it's still relevant now. So let's go off of, well, let me just go through it since we have 15 minutes. So if you have a previously healthy patient and they have a new infarction or, or have acute myocarditis, the first step is to consider is an inner aortic balloon pump. If, it, if it's good and it's working fine, then you could wean it to off, and then you go on your merry way while, while, when they recover. If they don't, then you could consider a short-term left ventricular assist device, which is still done, and it's called bridge to recovery. If they recover, then we're happy. If they're not, then you want to consider and see if there's a donor organ available. If there is, then you transplant. If not, then you do an implantable left ventricular assist device. So some of you may have questions of what's the difference between a short-term left ventricular assist device and what's an implantable one. The short-term one tends to be those new fancy devices that we'll talk about later, a tandem heart or an impella device. 
All right, so you implant an LVAD. Well, what happens if you have biventricular myocarditis or, or failure? Then you want to look at their right ventricular function because sometimes when you put an LVAD in, it may not help them if they have frank uh, RV failure. Well, if they don't have good RV function, then you could consider nitric oxide or a RVAD. And so those patients tend to have a lot of noise around them because they have an RVAD on one side, an LVAD on another side, and they're in the hospital for months. Um, if the RV is working, on the other hand, you could just optimize clinical status, and you could consider rehabbing them, and then you decide whether they are a transplant candidate or whether they recover. This patient, on the other hand, doesn't have, wasn't previously healthy. He had a history of heart failure, so he had acute hemodynamic deterioration. You tried him on pressors, it failed. So this patient may benefit from an IABP, especially if they have coronary artery disease, which he doesn't. Oops. Let me just go back. If they, if you can't, if, if the IABP is working and, and an organ's available, then you remove the IABP and then you just transplant them. If there's no organ available, then you go along the same pathway as the patient who has acute um, heart failure. Any questions on this algorithm? So the reference for this is in New England Journals from 1998, and, and some, a lot of the stuff is out of date in that article, but this graph is in. All right. So since we talked about interaortic balloon pumps, we should probably talk about them now. And what it is is it's a device that goes in the descending aorta. And it's here, it's, let me see if I get the arrow. It's below the subclavian artery. And it's above the renal arteries. And it inflates during diastole. So when that happens, that increases the diastolic blood pressure, forcing more blood into the coronary arteries, increases myocardial perfusion. During systole, the balloon deflates. And it has a little bit of a sucking effect. So it decreases systemic vascular resistance, making it easier for the heart to pump. That's the theoretical um, nature of it. And it's a temporary measure, so it's basically used to stabilize patients. This was developed in the 1960s and 1970s. And back then, when there was no LVADs or other devices, patients would have a balloon pump and it would be pumping away for weeks until they got a heart. Um, nowadays, you just use it for a short period of time, usually for two or three days, and use it to stabilize patients prior to going into surgery, whether for a, tra a transplant or a ventricular assist device or prior to PCI. So there's a caveat for the PCI patients. You only use it in patients who are in shock, and you can't get them better. So in other words, let's say a patient comes in with acute MI, you take them straight to the cath lab, but while you're trying to get them intervened upon, their pressure is too low, you put a balloon pump in first, then you do the intervention. That is okay by everybody's book. But if you have every patient that comes in with KILIP3 and KILIP4 heart failure from an acute MI and put balloon pumps in them, that is not an okay strategy. So this is actually compared in a randomized controlled trial, and that's called um, IABP. I forgot the name of the trial, but I thought the reference was down here. It's IABP trial, um, which randomized people to routine placement of an IABP versus not, and those patients only had more complications and no benefit. Clinically, if you do require this, most patients get a 75% improved hemodynamically. Um, and the reason is because this increases your cardiac output by 20%. We don't use it in heart failure patients much anymore. Usually if somebody comes in like this patient, you are well aware that he has heart failure for a long period of time, and usually you get the whole transplant team, LBAT team, to come in and 
and get ready to put in a more permanent device than an IAVP. However, if you, let's say you're scheduling the procedure for Tuesday, you could put a balloon pump on Sunday um, as a temporizing measure. Any questions on this before we move on? Okay. All right, so here's the contraindications to putting in a balloon pump. If you have significant aortic regurgitation, this device will make it worse. And the reason is because diastolic blood pressure increases with um, a balloon pump, and that forces more blood into the left ventricle, so it can make heart failure much worse. Um, if you have an aneurysm or aortic dissection, it would not be a good idea to put a thing that pounds on the walls of the aorta every heartbeat. So don't do that. Um, uncontrolled sepsis is also a contraindication, um, and this is because it worsens infections. If you have a bleeding disorder, you don't want to put this in. And the reason is because the, um, the access site for a balloon pump is very big. It's about at least a, fr a nine French catheter. Severe bilateral peripheral vascular disease, and the reason behind this is just for access reasons, and if you have grafts in your legs. If you have none of those contraindications, you can still get complications from just having it placed. So when you're pounding the uh, wall of the aorta with a balloon every heartbeat, it could flick off pieces of cholesterol, and that could cause um, a lot of downstream effects. So it doesn't tend to cause strokes as much, but it causes more renal artery um, infarctions or infarctions in the belly or uh, distal embolization. It can also lead to sepsis, and there's higher rates of infection with this. I've seen this more often than I would like, and that's why I get especially suspicious on day three and day four when there's a white count um, to pull the balloon pump. The balloon could rupture, which I've never seen, uh, but that's a theoretical problem. You could have thrombocytopenia, and this is just from a shear effect, shear mechanical effect, and the same thing for hemolysis. And you can get infection in the groin and neuropathy if you irritate the nerve. All right, so let's go back to this thing. This guy actually got a balloon pump, but now is still not doing so well, and he's not going to recover anytime soon. So then the next thing on your list is, is there an organ available? And this is, in an ideal world, this is really the preferred treatment for patients with, with cardiogenic shock. And that's because the 10-year survival rate is greater than 50%. Actually, at one year, the survival rate is greater than 95% nowadays. So that's great. One minor problem is not enough organs. So people are, they, they drive safer cars, so, so not as many people are having um, a brain death. And I guess they drive less motorcycles than they used to. So there's only about 2,500 a year, and that number actually is inaccurate. It's now dropped to below 2,000. So while you're waiting for an organ, 30% of patients will die waiting for this organ. So because of this issue, they start developing, you know what, let's, um, let's develop some mechanical devices to support the patient. So let me just skip all this stuff in the interest of time. So then you, what are those other devices? So one is ECMO. So this is, I think, Mike's new favorite topic, right? Yeah, so you wanted me to talk about it. Uh, the problem is there's no mortality data on this at all. Um, the biggest trial that I saw was in 12 patients, and they found that there might be benefit to using it in patients with cardiogenic shock. Um, both here and at, at uh, Johns Hopkins Hospital, they like using this in refractory shock, and they would use it for a couple of days before they put it in LBAT or a transplant. And, and I've seen it anecdotally to work well, but it would be nice to see uh, compare this uh, a randomized trial comparing this to one of these other devices, and, and those include the tandem heart or impella devices. However, those devices also have no mortality data, and they have high morbidity rates. 
So let me just go over the different devices. So we've already gone over balloon pumps here. So an impella device, what it is, is, a, is here, I don't know if you can see this here, but it's a catheter with a drivetrain through it, and it goes all the way into the left ventricle. And it has a rotary motor um, that spins at like 10,000 or 12,000 RPM. And it could increase your cardiac output uh, by about six or seven liters, which is, tends to be enough for most patients. So that's one device. So that's placed in the cath lab. The second one is tandem heart. And basically what it is is the drivetrain is, is by their groin, and it goes one, one catheter is inside the vein, collects blood, and then pushes it into the, um, uh, into the aorta. I don't think it goes into the heart. And, and that, one also, that one actually could uh, pump more blood than the uh, Impella device. It could do about 10 liters to 12 liters per minute. But it's a bigger device, and you have to go into the vein and the artery. And the last one is ECMO. So ECMO requir- requires a sheath in the vein and then one in the artery. So you could put that, depending on the patient, in, in a number of different areas. You could put it in the femoral artery, and it would work just fine. Some people put it up there. Obviously, the ECMO device tends to be a bigger tends to be bigger, and there's more morbidities associated with it. So that's why the tandem heart and impella are becoming more in favor. The impella probably a little bit more so than the tandem heart, and, and because it's, it causes less morbidity. But what I would love to see is a randomized trial comparing these four. Any, any thoughts on this? Because I, I think people here probably have some experience with it. No, no experience? All right. With all these devices they're bridged to something. So either you bridge them to recovery, which doesn't happen often, or you then put them on an LVAD. So one thing is to put a mechanical... You could- what an LVAD is basically is a mechanical blood pump, and it restores the work of the damaged ventricle and in more of a permanent nature. And if you implant it, most of them are so small now that all they have is a drivetrain outside, outside of the body with a battery pack attached. So it allows for early ambulation and hospital discharge. With all the other devices, you can't walk. You basically have to stay in bed. And you know if you stay in bed for a longer period of time, you have a lot of complications from it. So who do you implant these devices? So first you have to assess the patient mortality rate. So in our patient, his mortality rate is essentially 90% at one year because he's on IV inotropes. And so this is based on an old study, but it's still applicable now. Once you, let me see if I circled it. Yeah, there you go. So our patient is 90% mortality at one year with his therapies that he's at now. So the mortality rate of putting in an LVAD should, has to be lower. That's what the heart failure and transplant docs do. They basically assess what's your mortality risk and then compare it to the device. The HeartMate 2, which is probably the most used device nowadays, has an annual mortality rate of 20 to 30%, which is much better than it used to be. It actually has a 58% survival rate at two years, which is very interesting for a mechanical device. All right, so there's, there's actually four, uh, three, reco- three indications for it. One is bridge to recovery. So this is the one where has, has somebody has fulminant myocarditis, and they'll recover a couple weeks later. Or they have peripartum cardiomyopathy, and then three months later they're back. So you could put an LVAD in them, allow them to ambulate, leave the hospital, and then they recover function, and you pull it out. The next one is a bridge to transplant, and this is for patients who qualify for transplant. Um, and basically, you put it in, they go on their merry way, and then once an organ's available, they pull this LVAD out and put the new heart in. The third thing is destination therapy. So this is what Dick Shaney has. He has an LVAD in place. Now he's had it for, I think, a couple of years now. And you just... 
Did he get transplanted? That's right, he did, Mr. Arrow. Oh, well, we'll avoid the political talk for now. <laughs> so, so, um, all right, well, anyway, so most patients who have destination therapy tend to stay on the destination therapy list. I thought he was on that list because he was, was up there in age and had multiple comorbidities, but I, I was apparently wrong. So, so this slide here on the right is, talks about the Novacore, which is an older device, but people could live with a LVAD for years, and so... They have 1,000 who lived for six months before they got their organ, and then three that lived for more than four years. The longest that I've personally seen with the HeartMate 2, which is a newer device, is five years. And that patient actually does not want a transplant. They're like, I'm happy. I don't want to go back to the OR. We'll just leave this device on. And she was a pro with, like, changing the batteries, and it was, very, it was a very remarkable woman. All right. The last one, and, and the reason why I kind of put it out there is because it's not an FDA indication, which is bridge to candidacy. So some patients have severe pulmonary hypertension due to their longstanding LV dysfunction, and you don't, those candidates are not a candidate for a transplant. And the reason is because if you put a brand-new heart in somebody, their RV will fail. The, the, the new heart isn't, the right RV ventricle is not hypertrophied enough, and then they'll die within weeks. So the idea behind this is that you unload the left ventricle, and you allow the right ventricle to heal and the pulmonary hypertension to decrease with time. And so then they become a candidate for a transplant later on. They'll, they'll transition to bridge to transplant. All right, any questions on this before we, get, we move on? Okay. So in the interest of time, because it's almost one, here are the contraindications to putting it, uh, a LVAD. Basically, if you're actively infected, if you have problems with bleeding, if you have liver or kidney failure, you probably shouldn't get an LVAD. All right, so our patient didn't have any of them, so he ended up getting a... He didn't get the HeartMate 2, but I just want to put a picture of it. It's basically a device. You have one um, one uh, cannula inside the left ventricular apex. Then you have the drivetrain, and that leads to an electrical wire that leaves the body in the abdomen, and then the other one goes in the ascending aorta. This guy got a venture assist, which looks identical to it, or it looks similar to that, but that company went out of business. But he was extubated the same day. A couple days later, was discharged, exercised for t- on a bike for 25 minutes twice daily, and walked half a mile before resting. He didn't go back to work as a police dispatcher, but he still was able to do all this. Th- he received a heart transplant a few months later, and then as of three years later, was doing well. So that's that. Oh, wait, one thing. If you're not a candidate for further therapies, then you really want to consider end-of-life considerations. Patients can be discharged home on an inotrope because it will make them feel better. It might actually cause increased mortality. It might lead to an arrhythmia, but an arrhythmia is not as painful as having um, congestion in your lungs. And, but the goals, when, once you start considering that, is, is um, consider inactivating the ICD. Uh, consider a formal hospice program because that, that's uh, helpful. Uh, use diuretics to relieve suffering. Um, use analgesics and anxiolytics as needed. All right, any questions on this? That's it. It's 1 o'clock. So. All right. Sammy, if, just because I like simplifying things because that's how I can process it. Yeah. And when I think of cardiogenic shock, I try to categorize it into, I mean, it seems to me that it's one of three things. It's either muscle that's not working, it's either a valve that's not working properly, or it's a rhythm that's, you know, causing it. I don't know. Is that, I mean, I guess, you so know, tamponade, you can... 
if you so call that. There's a mnemonic that one of the residents taught me, which was uh, rest in peace, I guess, which is a rhythm ischemia pump. Okay. That's similar to it? or uh, I, know, guess, I guess, yeah. So, so yeah, that, that seems to be a great way of organizing it. And in terms of the sepsis-induced cardiomyopathy, which we'll often see in the MICU, and, the, and tell me if I'm thinking about this correctly, and this is the way I've uh, always thought about it, it's cytokine and you know, in, inflammatory-mediated um, uh, problem. Uh, you, know, you have that vasodilatation that occurs you know, in the arterial um, system, typically, or in, in all the vessels. Um, I mean, it's a cardiovascular System and I, I think of the heart basically responding in a similar fashion to the um, to the dilation of you know as, as the dilated vessels and sort of it dilates as well and I mean I, and also sort of just thinking is do you think there's any sort of uh, adapted response I mean it, that that relaxation of the left heart do you think it's relaxing in order to accommodate a greater um, greater blood and, and um... so that's an interesting question. So septic shock or actually anything that reduces the heart's very unique. It, it benefits from a low blood pressure and it's hurt by a low blood pressure. So if it's basically depends on how much cytokines you give. So actually sometimes septic shock in a patient who has cardiogenic shock, sometimes a little bit of septic shock helps because the systemic vascular resistance drops and then the heart's able to pump more. But then if it if the inotropic effects of sepsis are drop the the, right. the cardiac output too much, then then it's not helpful. And those patients, they're the ones that really need a right heart cath because you have to start titrating around drips to figure out what is the bigger dysfunction. Is it the systemic vascular resistance or is it more of the more of an inotropic uh, response? I don't know if that's helpful or not. Yeah, I guess yeah. I I'll, I'll rephrase my question. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. But, yes. So what, what he was asking about was specifically for RV failure, which tends to be seen, which is 3% of the causes of cardiogenic shock, which may be uh, an underestimate. Um, I like, for those patients, that my first-line agent remains norepinephrine. And the reason is because I want to increase my systemic vascular resistance, allowing for more coronary artery perfusion to the right ventricle. It, it also um, has a little bit of an inotropic effect on both ventricles, so it can allow for pumping of the heart. My second favorite is millernone because millernone preferentially works on the right ventricle. It both decreases pulmonary artery systolic pressure and it has a direct inotropic effect specifically on the right ventricle. So millernone is my second one. And if they could tolerate it, and this doesn't happen as often, as sildenafil because sildenafil has a PDE5, which also preferentially favors the right ventricle. Just one thing, also in dopamine, um, you know, we've see, seen it fall out of favor. And it, I feel like certain uh, pressors and inotropes or certain medications that try to do too much, try to be that jack of all trades, you know, are really are masters of none because, uh, you know, we, we have the ability in the ICU um, to really titrate specific, you know, to really target specific uh, uh, receptors. And so why not, you know, really uh, be right on target with targeting, if we want alpha agonism, or if we want beta agonism, really separating those and titrating them separately uh, for the desired effect. And I feel like epinephrine, to a certain extent, may uh, 
not do that as well as you know as we saw in the New England Journal, uh, norepi plus dopamine or dopamine versus. Yeah, I, yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I'm not a big fan of dopamine, unless you have bradyarrhythmias. Yeah. And epinephrine is even more deleterious. Yeah. And then one more cautionary thing I was thinking of, uh, lastly, for balloon pumps, always just be aware, I think, with the balloon, when it inflates, that it can include all the arteries coming off of the aorta, whether it's spinal artery uh, occlusion. So if you have new neurological deficits, it's not always just aortic dissection. You can actually occlude the vessels. Renal, if you see a bump in the creatinine or decreased uh, uh, urine output, you can have renal art, arterial uh, occlusion, but I'm very paranoid about those. <laughs> yeah, they're they're a high risk thing. Okay. All right. Anything else? All right. All right. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, sure. All right. Come on in.